For everybody else who's going to be here with me, you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. That'll be our text this morning. Book of Revelation chapter 3. After a couple of months in, we are all the way up to chapter 3. We are moving our way through in a series that we've called Apocalypse Now. And as we talked about early on, the word apocalypse just means revelation. Doesn't mean end of the world. Doesn't mean disaster or catastrophe. The word itself just means revelation. And so we are just walking our way through the book of Revelation a little bit at a time. Um, And so we are in a part of the book where the whole book was sent out to seven specific churches. And there was uh, stuff that they were all going through. And so in this broad book that is sent to the seven churches, Jesus does a little shout out to each specific church and speaks to them about what they are going through and some of the struggles that they are facing. So we are on church number five this week, and so we will be in this for a couple more weeks, and then we're going to take a break for Mission Sunday for Easter, and we will focus on that. But as we are uh, just continuing to, to work through the book, as we're continuing to work through 2021, as spring is here, as we are moving forward, as little by little we are working with through, or we're working our way through a difficult season. Uh, One thing that has happened in church life, not our particular church life, but in the Christian world, and you may have seen this, is that there has just been, in the last few months, uh, an unusual amount of Christian leaders who have had a moral failure of some kind. And uh, this, it's because when it happens with famous people, it tends to become kind of big news, and even some of the secular media will report on it. Um, Some pretty big names in in North American Christianity have uh, had affairs or, or just different things, financial stuff, and so things that have come up, and so they have stepped down from ministry, and then ministries are trying to figure out what to do, churches are trying to figure out what to do, and I've had this discussion with some of you, some of you have had questions about some of this, and um, one question that can arise in a moments like this is, you know, do we continue to listen to these people's teaching? Do we do we get rid of our books? Do we stop listening to podcasts or whatever? Um, and the answer ultimately is no, and it, it depends what you're comfortable with, obviously. But, you know, our Bible was written by sinful people. And so where King David, you know, had an affair and then killed a guy, we're not ripping the book of Psalms out of the Bible and saying, well, that's no good anymore, right? Because it was never about the person anyway. It was supposed to be about what God did through the person, what the Holy Spirit did through the person. And we can still honor that, even if we're struggling a bit with some of the other things that some of these guys had done. And so there's kind of a mix of emotion that can show up uh, in times like this. And again, I've been walking with some of you through some of it. And there's disappointment, obviously. And there's anger, maybe. And there's, there's victims in this. And there's compassion. Uh, a lot of these people who have fallen have families and you know, wives and kids. And now their dad is being you know, broadcast all over the world and their sins. And that's not something that most of us will have happen. Uh, you know, our worst mistakes broadcast for the whole world. And so there's some compassion there for the family and the children. Um, and, and so there's a world of stuff that goes on. But um, one of the things Galatian tells us, and it's talking about in your local church, but it says if someone is found in a sin, it says that those of you who are spiritual, who are mature, uh, should work to restore them gently, that, that we rally around people when they're stuck in sin. And, and then the added warning of, and also be very, very careful as you do that, 
so that you too are not tempted, so that you too do not fall into this. And so where it's sometimes easy to look at these things and say like, well, how could that happen? Or how could that person do that? Or how did that church not see it? Or why did that ministry not deal with it? And those are good questions. Those are things that those places are going to have to deal with. There's also a call to humility for us. And there's also a call to say, okay, even if I'm not doing that, where is there sin in my life? And what am I not dealing with? And what am I covering up? Because some of these things that had happened were ministries and churches that by all accounts were thriving and doing really, really well. And behind the scenes, there was stuff going on that wasn't as good. And so for us not to get on a high horse, not to think, well, that's not us or we're better than that, uh, that might not be your particular struggle, but to have the humility to say, all right, well, well, what am I doing behind the scenes? What does my secret sin look like? Where am I maybe projecting something to the world that isn't fully accurate or transparent? And to have the humility to say, okay, Lord, you know, how do I not make that mistake? How can I deal with these things? And how can I uh, learn from other people's mistakes and do better moving forward? And so the church we're looking at today uh, has a little bit of that going on. They were a church that looked really good. But there are some things going on that aren't so good. And so let's take a look at our text today. We're in Revelation 3, starting in verse 1, to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, by way of brief recap, the book of Revelation originally uh, has an audience of seven churches that reside in seven cities in Asia Minor, uh, what they called it at the time, what we now call Turkey. And it was probably meant not just literally for those seven churches, but for all the churches in the city, all the churches in the surrounding area. And all these churches are going through individual things, but uh, there's broadly things that are common. They're all struggling with this idol worship that's going on in the culture. All of them are feeling pressure from the Roman Empire to worship Caesar. Uh, so they would not just honor the king, but they worshiped him as a god. And so there's this pressure for Christ followers to do that. And then each church has some individual unique things that are going on. So Jesus has a message for each individual church as well. So we're making our way through. We're around uh, to Sardis today. So Sardis, at one point, uh, was this great glorious city. And it was built in this valley connected to this mountain. The mountain soars 1,500 feet above the valley. So this huge, huge mountain. And they built the citadel up there, and the main part of the city was up at the top of this mountain, and they surrounded it with walls. And the, around the side of the mountain, it's just sheer cliffs. Like, there's really no way. Like, whoever designed this city, this is brilliant city design. Uh, because it's way up on top of this mountain. There's no way to get at it. So even though there was a pathway that you could climb up to get to the mountain, uh, to get to the city, there's gates and there's walls, and there's no easy way to get into the city. So in order to try and take this city, you have to go 
go up kind of the one pathway that leads there, and you're getting, you know, arrows shot at you from the walls and all this stuff. And so for centuries, the city was unconquered. And it had this reputation that it's unconquerable. There's just no possible way. Uh, it was just too well designed. They picked the perfect geography. They built their walls well. They have shielded themselves well. This city is just, it's just impossible. There's no possible way that this city can be conquered until the day that the city got conquered. And the way that the city got conquered is that it was King Cyrus who we read about in the Old Testament. King Cyrus was uh, one of the leaders of Persia. That was the dominant empire of the day. We read about him in the Ezra and Nehemiah stories. And uh, King Cyrus was wanting to take over the world, as kings of empires often do. They want more and more and more. And when it came to Sardis, most other empires had just kind of passed it by. They just went, oh, it's too hard, right? It's up the mountain. There's no way to do it. There's no possible way to uh, get an army up and, and into those walls without just getting slaughtered. So we just won't even worry about it. But Cyrus would not be stopped. Cyrus said, I want Sardis. I'm going to figure out a way to take it. And so what he did, the way he realized you could do it, is you can't march an army up to Sardis. You can't get into the city that way. But you can maybe send one guy. And so he sent one guy, and one guy scaled the cliffs himself. They found the best rock climber they had, I guess. And he went up the cliffs, and as he got up the cliffs, he was able to sneak into the city. And once he was in the city, he opened the gates. And once the gates were open, the army could march right in. And so Cyrus walked right in and took the city. And so this city, with this great reputation of being unbeatable, unconquerable, impregnable, actually fell quite easily once someone realized there's a, a way in, there's a way to do this. And so Sardis falls, and then actually fell a whole bunch more times, because now the secret was out, right? Now we know know how to beat the city. And so it actually no longer had that reputation anymore. The other thing that we need to know about Sardis is that many years before, decades before, in 17 AD, there had been a horrific earthquake. It was called the Lydia earthquake. And it affected a lot of the cities we've been looking at in this series so far. And so the, this is, again, decades before uh, the book of Revelation was written more towards the end of the first century. But in 17 AD, this horrible earthquake happens. And many of the cities, including Sardis, were just destroyed, like just the whole city leveled to the ground. And so Rome, which is ruling the world at the time, was actually really good about it. And the emperor sent lots of money and lots of resources and lots of support. He said, no taxes for five years while you rebuild your city. And so Sardis was very, very grateful. And so emperor worship was actually pretty easy for them. They were so happy. They were so grateful that Rome had been so good to them. But it doesn't matter uh, how hard they had worked to try to rebuild it. They were never able to get the city back to where it was. They were able to rebuild it to a certain extent, but the devastation had been too great. The geography had shifted in the area. That's how bad the earthquake was. And so Sardis was just kind of a shell of its former self. They were able to rebuild it, but it was never what it was. And so it had the glory of being this perfect, impregnable castle on a hill, and that had fallen apart, and then the rest of the city got destroyed by this earthquake, and so now the city had kind of rebuilt, and they were trying to carry on, but there was really just, it was never going to be what it was. It had lost its glory. The glory days were long over. It was never going to be the same as it was. And so in the midst of all of that, there is this church, the church of Sardis. 
So they have the same struggles of the other cities. There's idol worship going on all around. There's pressure there. There is emperor worship going around. There's pressure there. If you don't worship the right way, people don't want to do business with you. So there's financial struggles. And so there's all these things going on all around them. And to this church, Jesus writes. So let's look again. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being live, but you are dead. So, that's great, right? That's nice when Jesus starts off a letter like that. What do we notice right away? No encouragement in this letter, right? Most of the letters we've looked at, Jesus introduces himself, and then he tells the church some good things that they're doing, right? He says, I know your deeds. I see your love. I see your faith. I see your commitment to truth. Jesus takes time to commend them and tell them the good stuff that's going on. That doesn't happen in Sardis. Jesus introduces himself, and then he gets right to it, and what he gets to is pretty intense, right? I know your deeds. He often starts that way. I know you. I know all. I see you. I see what you're doing. And then in other letters, Jesus will say, hey, so I see your love, and I see your your commitment and your service and your perseverance. But here it's, no, I know your deeds. I see you. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And that was what was going on in the city of Sardis, right? The city of Sardis had once been thriving and vibrant and important, and now the city was just dead. It was just never again going to be what it was. And like so many of these churches in these letters, the church is starting to take on the culture of the world around it. And that is the warning for all of us, is to say, where are we taking on the cultures that we are swimming in? And so the city of Sardis was once thriving, but was now kind of a dead city. And Jesus says, church, that's you. Like, that's what's going on in you right now. You have this reputation of being alive, but actually you are dead. And when Jesus introduces himself, every letter starts with him bringing a revelation of who he is. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You might remember earlier in Revelation, we've learned that the seven stars are the seven angels who are over these seven churches. And the seven spirits of God, it's not that there are seven holy spirits. It's not that there are seven different spirits. We took some time to unpack this back in Revelation 1 because we've already heard that phrase before, the seven spirits of God. And so where it's literally translated who holds the seven spirits of God, what it means, what it's getting at, your Bible probably has a little text note and explains this at the bottom. What it's getting at is who holds the sevenfold spirit of God. Because the Bible really likes the number seven. The number seven is the number of God. It's a divine number symbolically. It means completion and it means perfection. So it's not that there are seven different spirits who are the Holy Spirit. What it's getting at is this is the sevenfold spirit of God. The one Holy Spirit is the perfect and complete Spirit of God. And it comes from this verse in Isaiah 11, verse 2. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there are seven different names for the Holy Spirit in this passage the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of the knowledge of the Lord, and the Spirit of the fear of 
of the Lord. And it's not that there aren't probably infinite more titles that you could give to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God, but seven is just a nice round biblical number. And so there are seven different facets of the Holy Spirit explained in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And so it's not that there are seven Holy Spirits. There is the one Holy Spirit who reflects the perfection, the completion, the fullness of God. And so when Jesus is introducing himself, that's how he introduces himself. I am the one who holds the Holy Spirit. I am the one with the Holy Spirit in my hand. When Jesus is about to return uh, to the Father as he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus would say to his disciples, I need to leave. It's actually good for you that I leave because then the Father and I are going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And that's actually going to be better for you because when Jesus was walking the earth, he was walking around preaching the gospel. He was walking around prophesying. He was walking around healing, performing miracles. He was doing all these incredible things. Things, but there is a gospel that was to go out into the whole world, and if one guy is the only guy who's doing it, that's going to take a really, really long time, right? No airplanes back then, no fast way to get around, and so it's way better for Jesus when he says, I got to leave, because when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to live in every believer, and then every believer will have access to God. Every believer can preach the gospel. Every believer can share the word of the Lord, can pray for people, can see the sick healed. You're going to go out, and you're going to do all those things. And so Jesus' promise is, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus returns to heaven, that's what happens. The Holy Spirit gets poured out. We sometimes call that the birthday of the church. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills every believer. And then everyone else from then on who gets to know Jesus and receives Jesus as Savior, they too are filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus starts off this letter saying, I am the one who holds the Holy Spirit. I am the one who refills you with the Holy Spirit. I am the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here's where else that becomes important. Multiple times in the New Testament, we are told that the Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. And so to this church that is dead, Jesus introduces himself as, hey, I'm the one who holds the Spirit of life. I am the one who has the Holy Spirit who both leads you to eternal life, but who also just gives life to your soul, who refills you and renews you and refreshes you. The sense of the presence of God that we have comes from the Holy Spirit. The fact that the word of God can come alive to us comes from the Holy Spirit. The fact that we can hear the voice of God and sense the leading of God, that's the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. We can't do it on our own. And we're really, really, really good at faking it. And so this church at Sardis has the appearance, has the reputation of being alive in God. And Jesus says, you're not alive at all. It is possible to have a form of Christianity that maybe even looks good, but is devoid of the life of God. The Holy Spirit is not moving. We can go through the motions, and it's just dry, and it's dead, and it's not doing anything good. And so this church had this reputation which suggests that there must have been a time when they were alive. There must have been a time when they were filled with the Spirit. There must have been a time when good things were happening, but that wasn't happening anymore. So they're coasting on their reputation. 
They're coasting on what they're projecting to the world. But the solution is the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm the one who has the spirit of life. You're acting alive, but you're actually dead. But I have the solution. The Holy Spirit is the solution. When we're feeling dry, the Holy Spirit is the solution. When we're feeling far from God, the Holy Spirit is the solution. When we're feeling maybe like, ah, my walk is kind of dead or dying, the Holy Spirit is the solution. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and refilled and refilled and refilled again. And so the challenge for us is, where do you go in your life? Where do you feel close to God? Where have you felt close to God? in your spiritual journey? Where do you feel the life of God happening? Part of that comes from our church family. And, and one of the things that's been cool in COVID is that there is something about gathering in the room that's so important, but we can also get it online and we can get it in small groups. It doesn't just have to be on Sunday mornings, but we need other people to help us connect with the life of God. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in the word. We, like lots of people, we talk sometimes about spiritual pathways that we all connect with the life of God in different ways. It's not the same for every single person. So some feel especially close to God in worship, in musical worship. For some people, maybe it's in study of the word. For some people, it's wrestling with stuff with other people. Sometimes it might be silence and solitude. For some people, it's being out in creation and seeing God's glory out there. There's lots of different ways it can happen. But the challenge for us is wherever you feel the life of God, we need to grab onto the things that bring us to life in him. We need to carve out time for those things. We need to make room in our life for those things. The most common thing I hear as a pastor, if I'm talking to someone about, you know, their Bible time or their prayer time or Sunday morning attendance or whatever, what I hear most often is, I don't have time, right? It's the most common complaint of our culture. I don't have time. I want to do these things. I don't have time. My answer to that, just so you know, is I love you dearly, but that's nonsense, that's nonsense, because we make the time for things that are important. We do. We make the time. You've heard me say before, if you want to know what the priorities are in your life, all you need to look at is where does your time go, right? If I say my wife's a priority, but I don't give her any time, then she's not actually my priority, right? It's not about what I say or even what I feel my priorities are. Where your time goes, that's your priority. That tells you exactly what your priority is. It's very, very easy to see. And so we, we have time, and if we don't have time, we can create time. A few years ago, I started getting up at 10 to 5 every morning. And I'm the worst morning person on earth. Like, that just doesn't work for me at all. But I didn't have time to, to connect with God the way I wanted to. I didn't have time for prayer. I didn't have time for worship. And so the only solution was, well, I guess I'm going to sacrifice a bit of sleep. And I'm going to sacrifice that sleep, and I will do that there. And I will find the time there. And even though I still remain, and I stand by this, the worst morning person on earth, I have found the life of God in that early time. I find that refreshing. I find that renewal. I think sometimes it's when we're even willing to sacrifice things that God meets us there more because we're willing to give up something for him. We are putting him first, even in a sacrificial way. The Spirit gives life. He is the solution to any of these things. And so because we, you know, we're told in Scripture, you need to be refilled over and over and over again, which suggests that it's not like the well disappears, but we must need to be refilled because we just need more of him. We can't just co- 
coast on what he did yesterday. We need to be refilled over and over and over again. When that doesn't happen, it's very easy to do what this church is doing. It's very easy to do what uh, some of those ministries that fell are doing, which is we just kind of put on our mask and we project who we want to project to the world so that we look alive, right? So that we look really good. Part of my work in seminary uh, was on the psychological side of things, and we spent a lot of time talking about the false self. I've preached on this here before. The false self is the person we show the world. It's not the fullness of who we are because we don't want people to see our faults. We don't want people to see our sins. We don't want people to see our weaknesses. We want to look a certain way. And so we invest tremendous amounts of energy to look a certain way to the world. And hopefully, we are letting some people into our inner world. That's really difficult to do. But we are, are projecting a certain person to the world. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I mean, don't get me wrong. As I stand here, I really want you guys to think I'm a good pastor. I want you to think I'm a good dad. I want you to think I'm a good husband. And, and just the natural humanists will, will tell stories that make me look like a really good dad. Will tell stories that make me look like a really good husband. Because I'm not going to tell you the story where I was a horrible husband. And it's like, why is Sarah with this guy? Like, we, we put all this energy into looking a certain way. And it's not sustainable. We can't, we can't hold it up. We can fake it for a while. But it's not sustainable. And the other thing is, it doesn't fool anybody. It doesn't trick anybody. Like, our, our self comes up, all good, bad, and ugly. If you were to spend a few hours with me, very quickly, you would start to say, oh, there's an insecurity there. And wow, Chris is not perfect in that area. Like, if it took that long, like, very, very quickly, we see each other's stuff. No one looks at anybody else and says they're perfect, right? We see each other's stuff. This is a waste of time, and it's a waste of energy, and yet we do it anyway, right? We invest all this time because we want to look a certain way. The Sardis church looked alive, but wasn't. They had this reputation that they were presenting out there, and it's become very trendy. You see this online. Uh, you know, social media is a great place for this, right, to project exactly what I want to project and nothing else. And so with influencers or others, preachers do this all the time as well. I remember you'd always, you know, you'd hear a preacher say, hey, 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 kids, let me just be real transparent with you for a minute. That was like the youth pastor talk. Hey, kids, I'm just going to get real, real with you for a minute. I'm not perfect. I sin just like you do. And I've never heard a preacher say that where I didn't think, I know you're not perfect. I'm not looking at your life thinking, wow, you're perfect. We all see each other's stuff. It's very obvious. No one's looking at me or you or anyone and saying, wow, perfect marriage, perfect parenting, perfect walk with Jesus. We, we know. And so when Jesus brings this here uh, in the church of Sardis, like, man, can you imagine hearing those words from him? You have this reputation, and that reputation is wrong. I know who you really are. But it can also be unbelievably freeing if we're willing to let it happen, if we can trust him enough and trust some people in our, enough to let it happen. I've gone to see a counselor for years. It is not my favorite place on earth. I would rather put on my show and keep it to myself, maybe talk to Sarah, but I don't need the world to know. But man, it really can be freeing to let that mask drop with someone that we trust, and that is important, but to be able to say, you know what, it's not about the reputation that I'm trying to hold on to. I don't need to look a certain way to the world. 
Uh, I can be honest about what I'm going through. And when I'm honest, that's where help comes. That's where grace comes. And that's where God's mercy is so rich. And so the church in Sardis is putting on a show, whatever that looks like. They are, they are projecting something that makes them look like they're thriving. But Jesus says, you're actually dead. And so the challenge for us is, well, where is that me? Where am I dead or dying? Where am I hiding something? Where is my public life and my secret life not lining up? And again, you don't need to tell the world. You don't actually need to come up on stage and say, here's everything necessarily. But, but where is that me, right? Because one of the things we're doing in these letters is saying, all right, whoever has ears, let, this, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, what is the Spirit saying to me through this particular passage? Where am I looking a certain way, but it's not actually lining up with what's going on inside me? And and where can I find a safe place where I can start to, to let some of that down, where I can actually start to be myself more and more, where I can start to share some things? And so Jesus has solutions right away. You look alive, you're not. You have this reputation you're holding on to, but that's not who you are. I see that you're dead, so wake up. That's first step. Step one, acknowledge the problem. Right? They say anyone going through Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is you have to acknowledge there's a problem. If you won't acknowledge there's a problem, then you can't do anything else. And so that's amazing when we get to that point. So first of all, wake up to the problem. Be aware of what's going on. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So there is apparently some things that are still alive here. There is still some life here. The church is not completely dead. There is still some life going on, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God will come back to that. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, if you don't acknowledge this, if you don't make some changes, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So Jesus, as he does in all of these letters, he points out the problem. That's part of his job as Lord. He corrects us and he rebukes us when we need to. Uh, when that needs to happen to us. But we also understand that the very fact that he's doing that is actually only because he loves us, right? He, it's only because he loves us and because he wants us to get this toxic stuff out of our lives. He wants us to come back to him. And so the solution is wake up. Right? Be aware of this and be aware that some things are going to have to change. And as Jesus is saying that, you know, there's a lot in the book of Revelation that we're going to get to that has to do with uh, the Lord's discipline, the Lord's anger, the Lord's judgment at times, uh, punishment. And they're heavy passages. They're not easy to read. And yet, whenever we see the judgment of God coming in Scripture, it always comes with warning. There's always warning. He gives time. To turn. He gives time for repentance. He gives time to, for behavior to change. It's never out of the blue. He's never throwing a fit. There's always a warning that clearly says, here's what's going to happen unless you change, but he's giving us time to change. And so he's the parent who's saying, I had this often, my kids are better now as they're older, but especially when they're toddlers, where it was like, okay, if you do that one more time, right, here's the consequence. And then sometimes they would stare me in the eye and do it one more time. And it's like, well, now I have to do it, guys. I don't want to do it. Now I have to do it because I have to have integrity in your eyes and you need to learn the lesson. 
Like, I don't think any parent is, like, joyful in the process, but it's the understanding that for your good, sometimes the discipline has to come, and God always gives us a warning. So ultimately, when judgment is coming on people in the book of Revelation, they are ultimately choosing that themselves. They are choosing not to repent. They are choosing to ignore the warning. But Scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. In his kindness, he wants us in a better place. He wants us turning away from these things. I say often when I'm counseling people that, you know, if we're going to continue on this road that we're driving down and we're not going to make any changes, we're just going to wind up further down this road that we don't like. If we want to be on a different road, we're going to have to choose a different path. We're going to have to go a different way. And so Jesus' solutions to what's going on in Sardis is wake up, acknowledge the problem, strengthen what you have. And so whatever we do have going on that's good, we want to grab a hold of that. We want to be committed to that. We want to make sure that that part is strong. Remember what you've been told already. So, you know, especially if you've been around church for a while, like you know what you're supposed to be doing, right? It's pretty rare that someone's like, oh, sin? I didn't know. What, what sin? That's a sin? Really? Like, no, you know. You remember. And if you're newer to this, there's extra grace as you're getting to know this. But we're through his word trying to understand what pleases him and how to live a life that pleases him. So it's remember. Remember what you're supposed to be doing and hold fast to that. Remember how good this gospel is. And that's hard to do when you've lived it out for a long time. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it's so easy to lose how good the good news really is. That because of our own actions, we wandered far from God, and that he loved us enough to come chasing after us to bring us back to him. And where the price of that coming back was the cross, Jesus said, sign me up. I will go to it willingly out of my love for these people. And where our death was a major problem, I think it's fair to say death is a major problem. Jesus died and rose again so that death would lose its power on us. And then he offers that to all of us and says, come back to God. Come back to the family. Your eternity is secure. But not only that, you can know me and walk with me now in this life. You are brought back in to the fold of God and it's not out of anything we have done we were doing the exact opposite of good things and he came and chased us down and brought us back good news so remember how good the good news is hold fast to that and repent and we've talked about that word repent in the series already it literally means turn or transform or change change what you're doing Change directions. It's the U-turn sign. It's no, you don't want to go down this road anymore. It's time to turn around and pick a different road. Because Jesus says to this church, your deeds are incomplete in the sight of my God. Like your, your life is not lining up with this gospel. And we need to be careful. We believe that the gospel has come to us by faith. We can't earn it. Our good works don't accomplish it, that it's a gift that's come from God. We receive it by faith. But that doesn't mean our, our works, our actions are not unbelievably important. And if you're not getting that sense in the book of Revelation already, right? The works that we do, the things that we do are incredibly important to God. And so Jesus says your deeds, your actions, the way you're living your life is incomplete. It's not lining up as it should be for someone who is following after Jesus. So turn from that, repent from that, come back to the way of Christ. He says, if you don't, I'm going to come to you like a thief. And that's an interesting picture for the God who says don't steal, 
who says, I will come to you like someone who steals. I will come to you like a thief. And it's not about the stealing at all. It's something that Jesus would talk about, and Paul and Peter would mention it as well. That when Jesus comes back, it will be like a thief in the night. And all that means is it's not about stealing. It's about, you know, thieves tend to thrive when they're a surprise. Right? We, if you knew the thief was going to come at 4 a.m. and break into your garage, you would probably be awake at 4 a.m. You would have probably called the cops. You'd have your lights on. You'd be ready and waiting so that the thief doesn't break in because thieves thrive in the darkness. And so there is a, a message, a metaphor that Jesus uses that when he returns, it will be like that. It will be a completely unexpected time. The problem with thieves is they don't call you and say, I'm coming at 4 a.m. And so if you think a thief might be coming, it causes you to be alert and aware. And that's the point. When it comes to Jesus returning, we are to live our lives alert, aware that he's coming. He has given us broad signs of the times, but we don't know the specifics. And so we are called to be alert and aware and to live our lives before him as if he might return at any time. If you knew there were a lot of break-ins in your neighborhood, you'd probably be pretty alert every night. Right? You would want to be alert and aware. And so it's to live under that knowledge that Jesus could return at any time. And what I love about this particular metaphor, it's one that Jesus has already used in the, Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, is that for the city of Sardis in particular, I think it would have been very poignant. Because they remember a time when one guy broke in. Right? And the whole city fell, and all of its reputation fell, and all of its glory fell apart. And so for the city of Sardis to hear that, they would have been like, oh yeah, I remember that time when that happened, when we were totally caught off guard, and the thief broke into the city and opened up, and then that was the end of Sardis. And so it was a very real, vivid picture for them, I'm sure. And the call, again, for all of us is that that is how we are to live our life. The warning in the Gospels is it's going to be very, very easy to get complacent waiting, waiting for Jesus to come back. It's just going to be very, very easy to do that. And it'll get talked about in Thessalonians and Peter as well. That There's going to be some who go, oh, come on. He's, for 2,000 years, he's been talking about coming back. Like, what, is, what does soon mean? And very, very easy just to fall into like, oh, whatever. Like he's, I know he's coming back, but imminently, well, who knows? Like they thought that then. And it's easy to get lazy and it's easy to get complacent. And that's why this metaphor is so striking. Jesus says, no, you're to live constantly as if he is coming back anytime. When I was growing up in church, you would hear preachers say, Jesus could come back even by the end of this sentence. And that was the joke. And uh, it still holds up 30 years later. <laughs> but the idea was to live with that level of vigilance. That if Jesus did come back right now, because even if he doesn't come back right now, we don't know when we're going to see him. Our life is not entirely in our hands. And so we don't know when we will stand before him. And so to live life with that vigilance that if we were going to stand before him in judgment today, what would he find in our lives? And to take it that seriously. And so when, when Jesus is saying to the church, so wake up, strengthen what you got, remember what you've been taught, hold fast to that, and repent, it's to say, well, the thief could come at any time, so I'm going to get on that now. I'm not going to wait and just worry about it whenever. I'm actually going to take that seriously. It's a, it's a way to be motivated towards Christ's way and towards holiness. Verse 4, Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. 
They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And so even though the church as a whole is looking pretty dead, uh, there are some there who aren't. There are some there who are apparently doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so um, back then as now, um, there's often a metaphor used in Scripture of, uh, of cleanliness, of purity, right, of right action, of holiness. Uh, so even today, we'll, you know, that's kind of the classic tradition of a, a wedding dress. It's white because the bride is pure, and that's something that we still uh, do as a culture. And in Jesus' time, it was very much the same thing, that white represented purity. And so Jesus says there are some there who haven't soiled their clothes with sin, with compromise, with idol worship, uh, the ones whose deeds maybe are better than the group whose deeds are unfinished in the eyes of the Lord. And Jesus says, so there are some among you who are, are pure, and a little later in the book of Revelation, it'll talk about there are those who are in heaven and their robes are all white. And the reason that their robes are white is because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's counterintuitive, right? Blood stains. Blood doesn't clean. Blood makes things worse. Um, and yet there is something about what Jesus has done for us where as we trust in him, uh, as we put our hope in him, as we receive the forgiveness that he has offered, we become pure. And not that we ourselves have made that happen, it's that he has made us pure. And so when it says these people will walk in white uh, because they are worthy, it's not that we have made ourselves worthy, it's that he's worthy and he invites us to share in his worthiness. It's not that we're righteous on our own. It's that he invites us to share in his righteousness. It's not that we're pure by ourselves. It's that he invites us to share in his purity. He takes what he has and he gives it to us. And so we are worthy to walk with him because he has made us worthy. And even though this is kind of a, a harder letter, right? Like there's, there's no encouragement for these guys really. And there's some, some pointed comments that Jesus has to make. There's still a promise here in verse 5 and 6. The one who is victorious, the one who holds on, the one who keeps going, the one who perseveres will, like those people just mentioned, also be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the promise is still there. If you are able, church, to keep going, if you are able to, to be refilled with the spirit of life, if you keep persevering, if you keep holding on to me, if you don't quit, if you don't back down, there is reward here at the end of this for you. You too will be dressed in white. And so a little later in Revelation 7, we see this picture of this great multitude in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and they are all dressed in white because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and they are celebrating the Lord, and they are celebrating his victory, and they are made pure because he has made them pure. And so the gift of God stands in heaven, the gift of his forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of being able to walk with him. Uh, they are white because they have washed their blood or washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. And then the other promise is that Jesus says, I'll never blot your name out of the lamb's book of life. And that shows up, that theme shows up multiple times. The idea of the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is the Lamb. And it is the idea that when we stand before God on Judgment Day, books will be open. And one of those books is the Lamb's book of life. And your name needs to be in that book 
to gain entry into heaven. Like, that's, that's it. How do you get into heaven? Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Well, how do we get that? We put our trust in Jesus, and we bow our knee to him as Lord, and we follow him. That's how our name gets there. Now, what's interesting about it, uh, there's great debate in the church, not our church, but churches in general, about the nature of our salvation, once saved, always saved. That's one viewpoint, that uh, once you say yes to Jesus, that's it, you're good for life. There's another viewpoint that says, well, no, it seems from some scripture that maybe you can lose your salvation or have your salvation taken away. And I'm not going to launch that debate here today because I don't have time, and honestly, I don't want to right now. But this would be one of those verses that the people who believe that uh, you can lose your salvation would point to. Because it would be interesting for Jesus to say, if you are victorious, I will never take your name out of this book. It would be interesting for him to say that if it wasn't possible for him to take your name out of the book. Uh, it would be an unusual turn of phrase, right? Why would, that, why would he even say that? If you're once saved, always saved, it's not even possible then for your name to be taken out. But Jesus is making this a promise. And so just food for thought, and that's something to wrestle with. I don't want to start that debate today. But this is one of those verses that raises those questions. Both sides have scriptures that they lean on. But our, our point is, obviously, our main point is, we want our name in that book. And hopefully you want some other people's name in that book who aren't in that book yet. And that's where our job is to share Jesus. And we can't ultimately uh, convince anybody of anything. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We can't win anyone over ourselves. That's not our job. Our job is to introduce people to Jesus. After that, it's between him and them. After that, our job is done. But when we have loved ones and when we have those around us who, whose names maybe aren't there or as far as we know aren't there, our job is to point to him and our job is to pray uh, that their names will be written there as well. So Jesus says, if you are faithful, if you are victorious, um, then I will never take your name out of this book. He also says, and I will acknowledge your name before my heavenly Father. So Jesus said that when he walked the earth. Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So just so there's no confusion, you want to be in the first part of that passage. You want to be the ones who acknowledge him and are acknowledged. When we say Jesus is Lord, that's not just a light, fluffy sentence. That's not just a religious platitude. When we say Jesus is Lord and when we say he is my Lord, that's the most powerful sentence we can possibly speak. Because we are proclaiming who he is and we are proclaiming that we are his. We are proclaiming that we belong to him. I am acknowledging you, Lord, before the world. And as I do that, you will acknowledge me. And so Jesus circles back around to this Matthew passage at the end of our Revelation text today. That if you are victorious, if you hold on, if you persevere, then I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, we want our name written in that book and we want Jesus acknowledging us before the Father. And so we do that by acknowledging him, and we do that as we honor and follow him as Lord, as we receive that gift that he has given. Come on up, worship team. We're going to move into communion here. We've called this year a year of thriving. We, we pick a theme for our years. Uh, and so 2021, we wanted to call a year of thriving. We felt like 2020 was a year of just kind of surviving, right? It was just kind of getting through and, and figuring out a lot of new stuff. But 2021, even though we're not through everything yet, we wanted our focus to be more, okay, well, where can we thrive right now? Life is different. We're not doing everything we want to do. We're not doing church exactly our favorite way. But how can we thrive even there? How can we thrive with God, even in the midst of trial and even in the midst of difficulties? And so the question, the challenge, 
challenge today, the lesson, I think, from the Church of Sardis is, um, is what makes you feel alive? Where do you feel alive in life? Where do you feel alive in him? Where do you feel close to him? Where have you in your past felt close to him? Where do you feel the life of God? Where do you feel your spirit stirred? Where do you feel your soul refreshed? And whatever that looks like, go and do that unapologetically make that a priority. Carve out time for that. St. Irenaeus said, it is the glory of God that man is fully alive. That when we are at our most filled with the life of God, then we are bringing the most glory to God. Because that is when people look at us and say, wow, that person has something. That when we are full of the life of God, when we are full and feeling alive in what we are doing in life, then we are showing off to creation who our God is, who has given us this life. The flesh only takes us so far. I can only project so much before the cracks start to show. I can only, on my own effort, make it to a certain point. It's the Spirit who gives life. And we need the life of the Spirit. We need to be refreshed, and we need to be renewed. So where does that happen for you? And where has that happened for you? And it starts with the simple prayer. We should be praying this every day. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me. I need that filling. I need that renewal. I need that refreshing. And then carve out the places in our lives where we can make room for that. And so for me, a big part of it's been going for a walk. And it's, it's two birds. I get some exercise and I get to spend some time with the Lord. And I can find refreshing for my soul in that place as I do that. Where we will thrive when we find our life in Him. We will thrive when His Spirit is making us alive. And we will thrive no matter what we are going through. So where can you meet with God in your life? Where can you carve out time to seek him? Where can you carve out space to find your life in him? As we get ready to move into communion, uh, you can grab the elements here in the room. Take a minute now. We've learned it can take a good 60 seconds to navigate the engineering challenges of these new cups. So there's a top level that peels off, and then there's a second level that peels off. And at home, you can grab your elements. We... Um, we practice what we call an open communion here at Meadowbrook, which just means it's open to everyone who calls Jesus Lord. It's open to everyone who is following after him. If you're a visitor here today, but Jesus is Lord, then you are welcome to join us. We also don't have a set age on this, and this is more for parents watching from home because uh, our kids are on the other side of the building today. But um, we just decided, parents, you know better than us where your kids are at. If your kids are ready and you think they're ready, then by all means. And if they're not ready yet, that's okay. We encourage you to have them watch this and they can start to learn about it and get the hang of it. But communion becomes one of the places where we connect with God. It can be one of these, these refilling times, one of these contact points. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching. It proved to be maybe his most controversial message. Uh, he just starts saying, hey, everybody, you're going to have to eat my body, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And a bunch of people went, huh, that's weird. And they bailed. And you can't blame him. It's pretty weird. We're 2,000 years later. We know what he was talking about. It's a little vague in context. And he's not meaning literally in any way. But Jesus uses the story of Israel wandering through the desert. And manna came down from heaven. God provided manna from heaven so that they could live. 
There is just daily sustenance, and it's a good message for us as well. Whatever we're going through, wherever we're at, there is grace every day. There is grace from heaven every day for us. God will sustain us every day. And to tomorrow might seem overwhelming, but there's grace for today. Once we reach tomorrow, there will be grace for that day. And so God miraculously provides this miracle bread from heaven for the people of God. And Jesus would say, basically, that was great. But Jesus says, I am the bread. Like, I am the source of life. I am a, a much better bread that comes down from heaven because the manna was there to sustain Israel just in the natural uh, for a number of years. But Jesus says, I come down to give you life forever. I come down to give you eternal life, to sustain you forever. And so Jesus says, you'll eat the bread, you'll drink the cup, and as you do, that will be the symbol of the commitment that you and I have made to each other, that I am yours and you are mine, and I am the only way of salvation, and you should follow after me and walk with me. And Jesus gives that invitation to us. So every time we come back to the table, we are re-communing with God. And there's a moment where we eat the bread, where we drink the cup, where it becomes one with us. It becomes part of who we are. It comes into our body and it stays there for a little while. And it's just this picture of us just reminding ourselves of reestablishing that bond, that communion that we have with him. That as we say yes to Jesus, we become his and he becomes ours. As we say yes to Jesus, we become one with him and he becomes one with us. As we say yes to Jesus, we receive life in every way, both the spirit of life who is with us to sustain us in this earthly life and then eternal life and the promise therein. So we always pause for a moment because scripture says you should not come to the table in an unworthy manner. And what that means is don't be flippant about this. Don't be reckless about this. That this is an important moment to partake of the body and the blood of our Lord. And so a person should examine themselves. So we always pause, and we're going to do that here. The worship team is going to just play quietly like this behind us. And we always say, this is just a good moment for you to have alone with the Lord, whatever that looks like for you. If there's sin you need to confess, now's a great moment to do that before we partake. If there's anything you need to get off your chest, if there's anything you need to say to him, if there's anybody you need to pray for, if you just want to sit quietly and reflect quietly, that's all right as well. But we're going to pause here for a moment, examine ourselves, and get us ready. So let's do that now. Lord, we thank you that your compassions are new every morning. Your mercy is new every day. Your faithfulness is great. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are the source of life, that you give us life, you give us breath, you make our hearts pump, Lord. You are the one who has given us this life. You are also the one who gives us the spirit of life as followers of you, the life that sustains us and strengthens us. You are also the one who brings us to eternal life. You are the author of life in every way. And Lord, we want to pause this morning and come to your table, Lord, with gratitude. 
because you have been so faithful to us and you have given us this life. And so, Lord, we ask you today to forgive our sins once again, forgive our selfishness, forgive our flesh, forgive where we have not gone the way that we should, Lord, where we have put ourselves before you or put ourselves before others. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have just found ourselves in, in this place of uh, looking to ourselves, Lord, and overwhelmed by that. Lord, we, we acknowledge that we are weak on our own. We acknowledge that we can't do better on our own, Lord. And so we are asking now for your spirit of life to fill us again and freshen us again and strengthen us again, Lord. Set us free from lies that we believe. Set us free from sin that holds us in bondage, Lord. Set us free from the weakness of these bodies, Lord, that we carry around. Set us free, Lord, and bring us into healing and wholeness and fullness in you because you are the only source of life, Lord, and we need every bit that you have to give us. And so as we come to your table today, Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of saving. We acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. We acknowledge that it is your great kindness that brings us to repentance and that you have saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of your great mercy. And so with gratitude, we take the bread today, Lord. For what I received from the Lord, I also made known to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and giving thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread of life together this morning. In the same manner after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close in worship? We always say as we come to the Lord's table, worship can be our only response. There is only one way to react to what he has done for us, and that is to give him the praise that he is worthy of. So would you sing with us, please? Uh, if you're at home, you can join in with us as well, and then we'll close in prayer after that. <laughs> 